when I actually took the test and um, was about to find out my results, and they told me that the film crew was going to be in the room while I got my results. Oh, God. I'm like, Jesus, like, please, dear God, I hope I pass because it would really suck to get filmed failing. Hello, and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. As always, I'm your host, Zach Jabal, and joining me today is Master Sommelier Dustin Wilson to talk about his new wine store, exams, and psalm life. Before we get to that, though, a thought. The cultural ascendancy of the sommelier is very much a new thing, and much of it can be traced to the unexpected success of the movie Psalm. By putting aspiring master sommeliers like Dustin Wilson in the public eye and showing the world just how much dedication and work it took to reach that point, it created an archetype and cultural space for sommeliers to be celebrities. It's also created an interesting bifurcation in the sommelier community. Some are constantly pushing and striving for further achievements, like a new pin, a better job, more acclaim, while others are either content where they are or at least want to take a more scenic route. Neither is the one right way to do it, but it has fundamentally altered at least one fact about restaurant wine programs, where in the past sommeliers and wine directors were typically industry lifers with decades of experience, now they're often highly motivated and dedicated 20-somethings with a ton of theoretical knowledge and somewhat less real-life experience. I have no way of knowing what that will mean for my industry moving forward. Certainly, there's much to be gained from a growth in motivated and highly knowledgeable wine professionals, as long as they don't burn themselves out in their quest to reach the heights of the industry as quickly as they can. Joining me today on Disgorged is Dustin Wilson. He's a master sommelier and the owner of Verve Wine in New York City. Dustin, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Um, so first question, uh, kind of a simple but complicated one as always. Uh, how did you first get interested in wine? So I, uh, I worked in restaurants forever, um, ever since I was old enough to work. Um, got a job uh, basically flipping cheese sticks uh, back home and um, just kind of stayed in the restaurant biz for a very long time, working in various capacities. And um, it wasn't until I was in college and, and working at a an upscale steakhouse in Baltimore where uh, I got introduced to wine. And um, it really was, started off as a hobby. I didn't know anything about it and kind of needed to in order to seem somewhat uh, intelligent at my job. And um, so I found myself uh, you know, buying wine on my free time and picked up a couple of books so I could read up on it and um, just became enamored with the subject. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what it was that, that like, kind of taught me about it, but I think it was a combination of how it, uh, it really combines so many different disciplines all in one. Like I love how it's you know, geography, geology, culture, food, um, travel, uh, kind of all these different things that are encompassed into into wine, and uh, I just found it really fascinating. So I, what started off as a hobby, kind of became a little obsessive. And at the time, I, I really didn't know what a sommelier was. Uh, I'd, I'd heard people talk about sommeliers before, but I didn't really know what it was, or or even how to get into it, or anything. Um, but uh, so I, I took a wine class up in Philly. Uh, I'm from Baltimore originally, or from outside Baltimore. And I took a, my first wine class in Philly through the uh, International Sommelier Guild. And I remember uh, 
asking the teacher after the class was over. I was like, okay, does this mean I'm a sommelier now? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, well, no, not really. And uh, anyhow, I uh, at the time I, I had finished up school and um, I was heading off to uh, Colorado to go basically goof off for a year or two. I, I was done with college and wanted to take some time to just go ski. I'm a big skier and I, I wanted to ski and, and kind of keep learning about wine. But at the time, I still didn't think that I was going to work in wine. Um, I just kind of really liked it. Um, and it wasn't until I started uh, working in Boulder, Colorado uh, with Bobby Stuckey at Frosca um, that I kind of saw, you know, really learned about what it is to be a sommelier and realized that there was an actual career path that could be taken. And at a certain point, I just decided to go full steam ahead with it. Cool. Um, and so were, were there, was it the wines that, that Bobby had at Frasca, the, the wines from Friuli that were your, that were also kind of a, an inspiration or a, um, a sort of spur in that direction? Or was it more just being around him? Cause I've met him a few times and I can certainly understand how that in and of itself might uh, motivate you. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say mostly it was him. Uh, I just was super inspired by the guy. I mean, he's a great uh, hospitality professional, um, a great restaurateur, um, an awesome human being, and just like a all around great, great guy. Um, but uh, when I, you know, because when I first learned about wine, I was learning it at the at that steakhouse. Um, so my my foundation was really in classic steakhouse wine. So a lot of Napa Cab and California wines in general, um, with the occasional Bordeaux kind of thrown into the mix from time to time. And, uh, when, you know, I, I thought I knew a good amount about wine until I started at, at Frosca and it was so, so niched with Friuli and these kind of weird off the beaten path, Italian varieties and regions and things like that. And I realized I knew nothing. So it was actually it did play a role in the sense of me getting re-inspired by wine all over again and realizing how much I still had to learn um, because it was a whole new uh, set of wines that I had never heard of, never tasted, and um, it got me really, really super excited, and, and it led me down that path of getting away from – it was the first kind of change in my palate where I, I used to really get stoked on – you know, big Napa Cabernets and things like that. And my palate was then, then changing to more old world and, um, acid driven and, you know, earthy Italian wines and things like that. So it, it certainly played a role, but, um, you know, when the decision came to, to pursue this as a profession, it was certainly Bobby at the end of the day that really kind of solidified that for me. And so was there from, from there, were you, were you sort of, uh, did, did, when you decided to kind of uh, more aggressively pursue, um, the sommelier, uh, the various levels of the, the court, were you still in Colorado? Did you, had you moved, did you move elsewhere? Was that, was that a, a part of your thinking? Yeah, no, I was in, I was in Colorado and, um, like I said, my, my original reason for moving to Colorado was to ski and goof off for a bit, um. And uh, my intention was to live out there for a year, maybe two, uh, and then move back to Maryland and uh, go to grad school and, you know, go off and, and get a job. And um, when the two-year mark kind of came and went relatively quickly and I had gotten promoted and was um, was actually in my very first year of being a sommelier at Frasca um, is when I kind of looked at the whole scenario and was like, all right, well, 
this is when I told myself I would move home. Do I want to move home and kind of pursue what I thought was going to be my, my goal? Or do I want to kind of see this sommelier thing through? And, uh, when I decided to, to stay and, and keep on with the Psalm thing, um, I think in, in the back of my mind, I needed some sort of validation, um, to, to make it seem like a good decision for me in my, my life, I guess. And, uh, so that played a, a part in starting to pursue the, the, uh, exams with the court. Um, but it was also, I was surrounded by a, a pretty good number of master Psalms in that area. Um, you wouldn't think like Boulder, Colorado, but between, uh, there, there was a number of people that were actively either pursuing the, the MS exam or, um, they already had a number of, of MSs between, like the mountains up in Aspen and Denver and Boulder. Um, so I got to, to meet and be surrounded by a number of these guys, uh, all of which I, uh, really very much looked up to and respected. And, um, you know, those guys were kind of like my guiding light, I guess you could say. So when it came time for me to take this, um, this seriously, uh, I really just wanted to follow in their footsteps, I think. So that's kind of what led me down the path. And I, I really didn't think that I would go all the way with it. I knew I wanted to take the first level and maybe the second level. And then that was kind of going to be it. And then once I finally passed the, uh, once I passed the second level, um, it was kind of like, well, you know, a couple of my buddies are also going for the third level. I don't want to be left in the dust. So maybe I should go take the third level too. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I actually took that a couple of times before I passed it. And then uh, then my thought was like, all right, well, you know, you're past your your third level. You only have one more to go. It's like you're you've made it this far. Why you got to at least try, you know? Um, and so that was it. it. It was never like a I want to become a master sommelier and that's my goal thing. It was kind of like a gradual uh, like steps over time that led me to uh to getting there ultimately cool so when when you sort of got to the point where you're you're preparing and, and getting ready to take your your, your uh, the ms exam um i guess maybe for the first time were you in any way kind of prepared for the the effect that obviously not just becoming a master sommelier but obviously doing so in what turned out to be a highly public way um like, was there any, I mean, were you just, were you just like, okay, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to go back and keep working the floor or, or were you at that point already starting to think about like, what does this mean for me moving forward with my career? Yeah, I think, you know, my goal was always, I wanted to work, uh, I wanted to run a program at a great restaurant. Um, I wanted to be in charge of a wine list at a restaurant that was very much fine dining and very much like on the radar and on the kind of list of, of what many people would consider to be a, a really high quality restaurant. So my goal, my dreams were to be in three Michelin stars and that's what I had always wanted. And, um, it, you know, it's, I, I, I never would have thought that the, you know, when the, I'm sure we'll get into this more, but when like the movie came out, I had no idea that I would ever end up becoming kind of so public facing, I guess you could say my, my goal was really to just run a, a great program. Um, that was like the career aspiration. But, uh, so when the opportunity came around for 11 Madison park, it was, I mean, it was for me like the dream job. Um, it was like everything that I would have ever wanted or, or hoped for. So I was, uh, super excited about that. 
And so when you take over a program like the one at 11 Madison Park, when you're the person who's the, the wine director, to what extent is it, uh, was it your, I guess, missions, maybe the strong way to put it, but, but to what extent was it like, okay, we're going to just keep doing things the way things have been done, or are we going to, to, to change things significantly? Like, how do you kind of approach that? And, and obviously, some of it is circumstantial based on what they were already doing, but, but did you kind of come in and say, see yourself more as a, as a steward for something that was already in place, or as someone who was going to, to change and, and develop the program? No, yeah, I, I definitely wanted to make an impact. And I think that everybody, uh, when they get into a, a position like that, when they're taking over a program, wants to, you know, have, you know, put their, their stamp on things in some way, shape or form. And I certainly was no different with that. And I wanted to be impactful with what I was doing. And the the gentleman that came before me, John Reagan, uh, had really built a, a tremendous program there. And I thought, you know, you know, I first got there, I was like, man, this program is amazing already. Like how in the world am I supposed to do anything with this, um, to like make it my own and, and make it different and, 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 you know, continue to improve it, not just differentiate it, but improve it. Yeah. So it was, it, it took some time. Um, honestly, I, I spent probably the first six months or so really just, um, continuing the, the path and like observing and understanding, you know, what, what was going well, what didn't go well, where were holes, you know, what are guests looking for? How is the restaurant evolving? Um, you know, what are the missing pieces here that I think could be, uh, could be improved on. And, um, so for the first six months or so, I didn't really change much at all. Um, I just kind of continued, wanted to keep, keep the standard very high, keep things going and just observe. Um, and that works great. And I was really happy that I did it that way because it, it just helped me learn the ins and outs of the restaurant and the team and, and, and everything. And then, uh, after post that is when, you know, luckily I also had a really tremendous team of people with me there. The, the sommeliers there were amazing. Um, and everybody was really excited and, uh, and passionate about, you know, making this really one of the great programs in the world, not just in New York. And, um, so we would get together and, and kind of brainstorm every now and then and be like, okay, like here's what we think we can improve on and this is what we think, you know, a really world-class program should look like. And um, we started making active progress every, almost every day, you know, to, to kind of work towards our goals there. And were there, can you talk about any of the like specific uh, changes or, or like a wine or two or a part of the program that you, after that six-ish month period was over that you're like, you know, we, we I brought this in or we changed this and, and it was really, uh, you know, really kind of up to the, the level of, uh, of the wine program? Yeah. I mean, I think from a selection standpoint, we, um, we really tried to kind of figure out, all right, what's our voice here? You know, what kind of, what kind of food are we serving? What works well with our food? And then what's our what's our voice? And I think ultimately what we came to is um, there was a handful of either grape varieties or regions in the world that we decided a worked really well with the restaurant and b we were all extremely passionate about. So we decided to um, kind of put a lot of effort into sourcing and finding the very best producers from those particular places or of those grape varieties. Uh, and really just building that out tremendously. So, um, and, and that means with, uh, you know, the very best producers as well as, uh, a number of vintages from who we thought were, were the top, top people. So, um, the list now, I mean, if you look at it, we, we spent a lot of time really growing a lot of the verticals and, um, certain sections of the list. So like we built out, I think one of the really great champagne lists in the city, 
Um, Riesling was something that we really heavily focused on. Um, Syrah, I'm a big Northern Rhone head, so we, we really went heavy on Syrah, but uh, not just from the Rhone, but from various places around the world. Um, and uh, Burgundy, of course. But then also we wanted to make sure that we weren't just filling the list up with really expensive stuff. So we, we made sure to keep things balanced with um, kind of new up and coming wineries or producers, winemakers from from various places around the world. So I was really happy. I think there was actually zero Southern Hemisphere wine on the list when I arrived. Um, and we built out, I think, a really great list of like Australian, New Zealand producers who I think are... Uh, who weren't quite in trend, I guess, at the time. Um, but I think now people are become, coming around to some of these wineries a lot more. Um, and I, we were very proud to be some of the first, um, certainly at our level, to be putting some of those kind of wines on our list. Um, you know, kind of the new up-and-coming next wave of, of producers from down there. So we tried to pride ourselves on, you know, finding the really great classics from the places that we were really passionate about and worked with the list. And then also um, finding kind of the new up-and-comers in places where people, you know, kind of maybe shrugged off as regions in the past. Mm. So that's what we did on the on the list side. And then, you know, internally, which wasn't always really, uh, you know, guest-facing, we created a really fantastic uh, education program with the staff. For us, we wanted to make wine super like top of mind for not just the SOM team, but for everyone in the restaurant, um, both because we were excited about it and we like to share our knowledge, but also, you know, ultimately as a sales tool, the more people that know wine on your floor and are excited by wine, the more wine you're going to sell. Um, so we did some really great things with the educational program. And then uh, as far as service, we tried to think through the various ways that, you know, because this is some, you know, the only creativity that you have is either with your selection or, you know, what kind of glass do you want to put down in front of somebody? But like service is, it's tough to get creative with service. So we tried to be playful and fun and maybe a little bit more theatrical, um, with the things that we did in service. So you maybe have seen like some of the port tong stuff we did, or we did this crazy stuff with like, uh, Essentia spoons and whatnot. Um, to try to have some showmanship with, um, with wine service as well, instead of, uh, kind of just carrying on with the normal status quo. I mean, I saw, you know, that stuff was all kind of was all over the internet. It was fun to watch and, and see it kind of, uh, it kind of take hold. Um, I'm wondering if that sort of, if you're, what you're talking about with regards to the, the program and the, um, the sort of breadth that it encompassed, was that, uh, an experience and a sort of a approach that you've since brought to retail. I mean, I mean, do you, cause I think, you know, there's a, a restaurant list sometimes I think, especially at, you know, um, higher end restaurants can definitely skew to the classic and or, or well, classic and usually very expensive and, uh, retail obviously depending on where you are can, can be some of that, but, but, you know, when come, someone is coming in and buying a bottle of wine, oftentimes they're not looking to buy an old bottle of Burgundy. I mean, Sometimes, but <laughs> most of the time, not in my experience. At Sometimes. Least. <laughs> yeah. So I think, uh, you know, I'll be honest. Um, it's a, it's been a big change, uh, going from restaurants to retail. And we are right now about six months in since launching Verve. And, uh, I've been spending a lot of time. It's, it's brand new to me. 
Uh, luckily, I have a partner who's been doing retail for a very long time, so he kind of helps and is a, is a great guidance. Um, but you know, a lot of the stuff, honestly, that you're you focus on, you're really good at with restaurants, doesn't always translate well into the retail setting. So it's been a it's been a big adjustment, and uh, I would say these last six months or so. Uh, or more, I've been spending a lot of time just trying to acclimate myself to the environment and, and kind of still in that observation phase, so to speak, um, to see what it is that people really care about, what are people looking for, what makes people happy. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think what I'm realizing, um, it, it's a it's a it's a different combination of things. I mean, we're trying to position ourselves as being uh, a place that is really particular and highly curated with the selection. Um, and granted why you can't, you can't just fill up a shelf with 15 vintages of, you know, Hermitage for instance. I mean, you could if we had the space, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to be a little bit more thoughtful with, uh, the different regions that we cover. And I think it's, it's for us become a lot more about finding those really great up and coming producers that over deliver on their price point. Um, things of that nature. And, and also some of the classics too. I mean, we're lucky because of our zip code down here in Tribeca. Um, you know, we can have some like cool, uh, Premier Cru, Grand Cru Burgundy and, uh, Rhone wines and stuff like that kind of hanging around and people come in and buy them. Um, so we're lucky in that regard, but generally speaking, it's, it is a different deal. We're trying to find like those cool up and coming regions or producers, um, that we can also be a source of, of education with also. Did you find, or have you found a sort of a difference in the way you interact with someone who comes in the a wine shop versus people who are sitting and having dinner? And, and maybe obviously there's a big difference at a place like 11 Mast Park, but even the, the kind of service you were doing at slightly less formal restaurants, is it, is it a different kind of interaction with those people? It is. I mean, I think there's some basics that remain the same. I think, you know, from a person that comes from a highly a high service background, um, basics like smiling, people walk in the door, greeting them and um, being excited that they're coming into your establishment is, uh, you know, stuff like that is, is very basic, very key. Um, so we, we try to to make sure that we're doing some of those kind of service related uh, elements here in the shop. Um you know, just take generally taking really good care of people and, and being excited that they're spending time with us and talking to them as we, you know, show them around the shop or show them various wines. But, uh, you know, because in a restaurant setting, you're, you're serving the wine to the guests and you get to see their immediate reaction and you get to talk them through how it tastes and how it interacts with the food, you, you know, you don't get that opportunity in retail. So, there's a little bit more of a guard that's up with people um, when it comes to going out of their comfort zone. It's a lot harder to do it in retail than it is with uh, in a restaurant because in a restaurant you get to be there, open the bottle, serve it to them. If they don't like it, they can tell you they don't like it and you find something else. Whereas here, you know, they walk out the door with it and you just kind of keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> so, um, so it's definitely a little different in that regard. So you the 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 trust factor that you get in a restaurant it takes a little longer uh to gain that with people but i think once you do um you know that it's great to see people kind of just keep coming back and and uh just looking for your recommendations and putting putting themselves in your hands 
Whereas you can usually kind of get there a lot faster with a restaurant. Do you find that most people who are coming in are looking for a bottle of wine sort of for right then and there, or are they looking for a bottle of wine for, for some point down the road? Uh, yeah, mostly, mostly, you know, pretty immediate consumption. I would say, uh, I don't think we, we get some people that are buying, you know, burgundy or something like that by the case that they want to put some in their cellar and keep it for a long time. But, um, you know, most of the time people that come in are looking for something for either that night or that weekend or, you know, take to a friend's house, etc. Um, or they're, you know, they've read about a couple of producers and they're excited to try a couple of things. Um, so they'll, they'll come in and pick up a few bottles and, and drink them over the course of a couple of weeks or something like that. So, uh, most of the wines that are being purchased at, it seems to me are being consumed pretty quickly. Um, but we do have a handful of, of clients as well that are, uh, you know, stocking up their sellers also, mm-hmm. but the, it's a, it's a much smaller percentage. Sure. Um, and so when you when you kind of made the decision to transition from from Eleven Madison Park and maybe from restaurants generally to retail, I mean, I I think it obviously had to have been at least somewhat difficult. As you said before, that was sort of your dream job. And, um, you know, I think one of the funny things and when you talk to people who have their or got their dream job is suddenly once you're there for a little while, you start having another dream job or something <laughs> changes. Um, so, so what was it that, that sort of impelled you to move from, from that kind of uh, role into a different one? Well, I think uh, kind of going back a ways, um, when, I, when I was working at Frosca under Bobby, uh, before he opened Frosca, he was the wine director at the French Laundry. <clears throat> and um, it was always amazing to me. And when, when I started at Frosca, they would they had just celebrated their year mark, so they were one year old at that time. Um, so a pretty new restaurant still. And uh, I remember the the volume of people that were even just coming to the restaurant or there at the restaurant talking about how this place was somehow related to uh, the French Laundry. It was crazy. I mean, it was almost every table. Um, so that meant something to me. I was like, wow, okay, this, you know, because he was at the French Laundry, people are giving this guy a shot, you know, at least right away. He's got this platform that that not a lot of other people would necessarily have. So for me, I, I always kind of looked at that and was like, all right, well, I want to go off and, you know, that's what, one of the reasons why I wanted to work at a great restaurant is because at some point in time, if I ever want to do my own thing, I want to have that great experience under my belt. Um, so my goal, my long-term goal was always to do something. I thought for a long time I was going to open a restaurant, um, which, you know, I haven't written off completely, but, um, when I got that job at, at EMP, uh, I knew that I was never going to take another wine director gig after that. Um, a, because why would you, it's, it's such a great place. Um, but B, you know, that was going to be my, my kind of crowning, moment, uh, in the restaurant world. So I knew that at a certain point in time, whenever I did leave, it would to be only to go off and do my own thing. I would never go work for another restaurant or anything like that. Um, so yeah, it was, it was extremely difficult decision to make because it's, uh, you know, it's such a great restaurant and, uh, it's such an awesome platform. And, you know, I mean, I had like free reign to kind of basically do whatever I wanted with the program and, we had amazing wines. We had a great team. Like everything was amazing, um, and, a, and a growing company too. So it was really hard to to finally decide to to move on. But for me, I always wanted to 
I knew I always wanted to do my own thing and I kind of just had to pull the trigger at some point in time. And, um, I think for me to, to make the decision, not only to, to leave EMP, but to, to not do a restaurant and go into retail, um, it's kind of a combination of things that, you know, I, I definitely can't, I have to mention the lifestyle part of it. Um, because, you know, I wasn't like a, not an old man by any stretch, but not a young buck (laughs) anymore either. And, uh, you know, I wanted to try to set my life up in such a way that there was a little bit more balance. I mean, I think, um, a lot of my friends and and people kind of outside the industry, it's hard to, to watch them have all their, uh, their weekends and holidays and free time and stuff like that and, and not start to get a little bit jealous of that. Um, so the lifestyle thing certainly came into, into play with the decision. Um, but also I looked at the kind of landscape of retail and, just kind of thought like, man, it's, it's been operating kind of this very similar way for a very long time. And, um, you know, we're living in this day and age where so many younger people are really getting into wine and there's so much great wine out there. Um, I just saw kind of an opportunity to do something a little bit different, uh, and have, have some impact on the scene. So it was uh, it was a slow decision to kind of not do the restaurant thing and and move over to retail, but uh, ultimately uh, it filled it filled a few needs for me. I think one to to be able to do something on my own professionally that that could could make an impact somehow, uh, and then also at the same time um, you know give me a life that's uh, I think a little bit more suitable for for a long term look, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it makes sense. They're, the the late nights get old once we get old. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I you talk to it. talk to anybody who works at Three Michelin Stars, or you know, a lot. I mean, re- a lot of restaurant people in general. I mean, your uh, your days are. If I could squeeze out with a twelve or thirteen hour day, that was like a short day, you know. And um, there were many days where it was sixteen plus hours, and it's it it is what it is, and that's what you do, and you you're super dedicated and that's your role. So you know what you're getting into, but, uh, uh, at some point in time you're like, man, you, you know, you, you just realize you can't necessarily keep that going forever. And, um, you need to think about what's next. And if I want family and kids and stuff down the road and I don't want to be the dad that's never around and you know what I mean? So it's, it, it, there's definitely some, some personal stuff that comes into play after some time that you need to really think about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it, it certainly makes sense to me, too, not necessarily that, that it would be retail in particular, but there is that element also, as you mentioned before, of wanting to, you know, do something on your own to, to work for yourself first and foremost. And, and no matter the, the ownership of a restaurant or how supportive and great they are, it's never quite the same. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, retail also for me was like a uh, it's another segment of the wine business that. I didn't know much about at the time and, uh, really wanted to explore. I've, I've kind of dabbled in, in production. I've dabbled in like import importing and distribution. Um, so it was, uh, I was always, when I was working in restaurants, when I was younger, I always liked working all the different positions in the restaurants. So I would like work back of house, front of house, you know, everything from busser to bartender, manager, uh, line cook, you know, dishwasher, you name it. I really liked doing all those different things because it kind of taught you a different skill set. And um, if you really wanted to understand the restaurant as a whole, the best way to do it is to 
you know, work all those different positions. And, um, so I, I kind of look at the wine industry in the same way of like, if I really want to get a good grasp on the, the industry as a whole, it's nice to kind of, you know, work in, in the various aspects of it. Um, so it's been a great learning experience for me as well. So, um, question for you about sort of the stepping a little bit back to the, to the process of becoming a master sommelier and then kind of a little bit actually what, what came after and, and setting aside sort of the unique circumstances of your uh, experience. Um, is it, what is it like, I guess, as a master sommelier, one from a like continuing to learn standpoint, is it, is it different now that there's not um, like a, you know, there's not a super master sommelier of wine or, a, you know, super <laughs> master sommelier uh, pin out there. Um, although they should totally work on that um, or something, but uh, you know, is it, is it different? Is it a different um, motivating factor when there's not another uh, level of achievement that will be recognized by an outside body? Um, you know, it's funny cause I, I was just in Phoenix the last couple of days, um, proctoring the advanced sommelier exam mm-hmm. with, uh, I think there was about 35 MSs out there with us. And, uh, one of the guys I was chatting with, um, he's, who's an MS, he's, uh, decided to pursue the uh, best sommelier in the world competition. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was simultaneously like, Mad respect, dude. That's awesome. And then I was thinking to myself, God, I would never want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think um, it, it definitely changes in the sense that, like, uh, you, you do a lot of things to prepare for the master's sommelier exam um, as far as, like, studying and preparing that you're, you're going to lose some stuff afterwards. Um you know, you have to study certain regions, certain places in the world that, you know, maybe as, as a personal wine drinker, you're not super passionate about. So inevitably you're, uh, unless you really keep up with that knowledge on those places, um, you're going to lose some of that. Um, but at the same time, because you're not on this kind of strict curriculum of preparation for an exam, you're able to dive a lot deeper into the places that you do really care about. So, you know, I've I've spent a lot of time just digging more and more into uh, like Burgundy and the Rhone and Champagne and like these these Barolo and stuff like that places that uh, that I really love the wines and like just get super jazzed up about. So um, and I have the time to be able to do that now uh, that I didn't before. So you know, it's it's nice. And then you know, you luckily you don't have to go back and and uh, recertify yourself. Thank God. Um, but, uh, teaching also keep kind of forces you to, to stay up on it. So, um, I do a lot of classes with, uh, like the intro class and, um, the certified and things like that, where you, you're kind of forced to re-engage into some of those other regions that, uh, you're, you're not paying as much attention to so that you can make sure you're teaching properly. Um, so there is that also. So one thing I found when I've been studying for exams and then sort of that's interesting for me is that um, maybe my theory study, my the areas of the wine world, as you mentioned, that I have to kind of think about are much broader. But oddly, I feel like what I'm tasting narrows really, um, really dramatically because, you know, especially when you're practicing for 
blind tasting exams you know you're focusing on classic varietals and all that sort of stuff and then for me when i'm like less focused on an exam or in that sort of prep period then it's more like my i don't really read as much or study as much about stuff that i as you said that i'm not interested in but i drink a lot of other wine that would never come up in that context yes so you mean like just uh how does tasting change or yeah i guess or just do you find that like because uh, you know the stuff you mentioned that uh, as far as being interested in and and maybe from a theoretical and certainly from a drinking standpoint would all certainly be kind of classic um classic varietals and or classic regions at least but do you also like find yourself drawn to like whether it's you know some of the stuff that um from other parts of france that isn't necessarily oh uh, like kind of wine? yeah oh yeah much 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 more so um you know, I, if, if I would say going through the, the exam process was great in the sense that it really trains your palate. Um, you know, you kind of hit a certain point where you, you really start to know yourself and, and be really self-aware with, with your own palate and kind of what you're into and what you're not into. Um, whereas I think kind of, as I was, if I think back to how I was going through the process, um, I was still, I was always trying to analyze wine and trying to figure out wine. And I, I, it probably wasn't super comfortable in my own skin with like what I liked and what I didn't like. Um, I was still really figuring that out. So by the time you get through though, I think everybody at a certain point kind of really starts to understand their own, their own palate. And, um, so now what's nice is like, I kind of know what I like. And then I taste stuff from all over the place, like weird things and crazy blends and stuff like that, that I would have never tasted before, um, you know, looking at it from an exam point of view. But, uh, that's, that's part of the fun now is I get to kind of taste whatever and I don't care if it's classic or not. Um, and I, I probably drink a lot more non-classic stuff now than, uh, than ever. Cool. So the now the now comes a requisite question about the movie uh, or questions maybe um yes. so i mean it's you've, you've talked about it and, and it's been talked about in the past kind of how coincidental it sort of was that um to some extent that the movie came together that jason wise yeah. wasn't even really thinking that this is what the movie was going to be about and also that you know um the that it obviously became uh such a successful um certainly in wine circles in particular so at what point for you were you like wow this movie that i was in sort of on a whim or presumably sort of on a whim is like it's a thing like people know who i am because of it (laughs) yeah um i think because when it came out i was working at emp and uh when people started coming into the restaurant and uh they had like flown in from some other place to to new york they're from out of town and they told me that they saw the movie on their United flight or something like what, (laughs) you know, that was, uh, that was when it really started to hit me that I was like, Jesus, this is like a thing, you know, because when it first came out and, you know, I'm I'm sure you've probably heard me talk about it before. Like when we, when we did the movie, I, I didn't really have any expectations for it at all. And, um, even when it first came out, it was kind of like, Oh yeah, it's cool. You know, it's it's out there now in the world. Uh, you know, I, I really didn't think anybody would ever really see it or it would turn into anything at all. I, I liked it, but I didn't realize that it was going to become what it became. Uh, but I, I would say it it definitely hit me by the time people were rolling into the restaurant and, you know, numerous times a night I'd, I'd go to tables because they had seen the movie and they wanted to meet me or um you know, they were talking about the movie with their sommelier or 
Um, they came to the restaurant because they saw the movie, you know, like it was insane. Um, yeah, that's when I was like, holy shit, you know, this is like a real deal. <laughs> and I, I didn't really know how to react to it or anything. So I kind of just like took it as it came and it was nice to kind of be on the floor and get to meet everybody. And, uh, you know, it, it was fun. It was really fun for me. Yeah, I can imagine, too, that there's a way in which if any of you guys who were involved with it had known it would be as successful as it ended up being, the movie itself probably would have been kind of different. Uh, like the the sort of the candidness of it all is what I think to me makes it enjoyable is it's not, you know, you're not acting really. No, no, we weren't acting at all. I mean, you know, obviously, when you get in front of a camera, you're you're uh, you you're a little more mindful of you know what you say or how you look or. You want to make sure you're looking at the camera, you know, like things like that. You don't want to look uh, look strange by any stretch. But uh, but otherwise, yeah, we were totally candid and just ourselves. And I think mostly because we were just like, oh, yeah, whatever. This is just for fun, you know. Um, so it didn't in our minds, I think it didn't really matter. So uh, when it when it came out and it and it turned into what it did, it was uh, it was super surprising, I think, to definitely to me, I think to probably for everybody. Um, do you feel like there's some way in which that part of being uh, or being a part of the movie being uh, made or being filmed made your preparation for the exam better, worse? Was it harder or easier or did it do you think it didn't have much effect? It it didn't really have that much of an effect on on how I was preparing or anything. Uh, there were some moments where it kind of got in the way a little bit um, and was frustrating, uh, but it didn't change how I was approaching the exam or what I was doing except for when I actually took the test and, um, was about to find out my results. And they told me that the film crew was going to be in the room while I got my results. Oh, God. I'm like, Jesus, like, please, dear God, I hope I pass Cause it would really suck to get filmed failing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, other than that, it, it didn't really change anything. It, there was, and then they filmed actually this one scene in the movie where I just had this bomb tasting just completely fell apart. And it, I was like two weeks prior to the exam. And I think I went like one for six in the lines and it was like the worst tasting I'd ever had, uh, all caught on film. And, um, I think part of it was due to the fact that I thought I was going to this guy's house to taste one-on-one with him. And I show up and the film crews there and six other sommeliers from around the city were there to, to like watch and observe. And I'm like, man, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> but, uh, but other than that, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was mostly totally fine. Cool. So I know you, uh, fortunately will never have to go through that again, but I'm, I'm curious, uh, like before the exam or, or, or just even thinking about it now, like, or maybe more before the exam, cause now you're probably not you know, sort of staying in that same mindset. Was there like an, a dream flight for you? Like if you're like, man, if I got these, these six wines, I feel like I, like I'm going to, I'm going to nail this. That's a good question. Uh, no, I wouldn't say I never really thought about it like that. Um, I, I can't say that I, uh, like ever was like keeping my fingers crossed for like certain wines to be in a flight or anything like that. I just, uh, yeah, I just, um, I was, I was trying to just get there and just like figure it out. And, um, you know, luckily the the guys that I was tasting with out, out in SF when I actually did pass and like some of the people that were mentoring me through the process that I, I really didn't start feeling comfortable with tasting until maybe six months or so before the, 
the exam and kind of like it's like the clouds opened up and everything was clear and I just kind of got it. Um, so yeah, I never like dreamed for a certain flight. It was more just kind of like, I hope I don't get the sniffles that day. I hope that I don't like come down with a cold or something mm-hmm. when I roll into the exam. And I hope that, uh, you know, they speak to me that day and that's kind of all you can hope for, you know? Mm-hmm. Last question uh, before I let you get back to what I'm sure is a busy day. Uh, what do you, uh, what do you think you're going to be drinking tonight? Well, uh, I'm going to a, a wine dinner uh, with a friend of mine who's in town from Napa, um, who is a winemaker out there, and uh, he is likely bringing a bunch of his uh, big Napa wines. So uh, it sounds like I'm going to be eating some steak and drinking a bunch of uh, Napa Valley Cabernet this evening. Oh, it's like uh, coming full circle to your uh, early like, days uh, in the industry. It's like guilty pleasure, man. I mean, it's uh, you know a good... Good like uh, New York strip and bottle cab is always a good time. Yeah, I was gonna say there's there's a reason that's still real popular. Yep. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Dustin, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it, and uh, definitely look forward to stopping in at uh, Verve Wine next time I'm in New York. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Master Sommelier Dustin Wilson for joining me on Disgorged. You can find Verve Wine in Tribeca or online at vervewine.com, and Dustin is on Twitter and Instagram at Dustin Wilson MS. As for me, you can find me at DisgorgedWine.com or on Twitter and Instagram at Zijabal. Thanks again for listening to Disgorged, and cheers. Cheers.